Uh, another woman, or the first woman to enter the Conservative uh, leadership race today, Leslyn Lewis, the Ontario MP, announced her candidature, candidacy today on social media, joining Pierre Polyver, uh, Polyev. Rather. We expect Jean Charest to enter the race in Calgary on Thursday as well. It's being called a battle for the soul of the party, a right turn or emerge back into the middle, a big tent party or something different from what we've seen before. September 10th is the date that that leader will be chosen. Those running have until April 19th to throw their hat into the ring and until June 3rd to sell membership. So how is it shaping up so far? Are there any surprises out there or candidates waiting to enter the race? And who is best suited to challenge the Liberals? Joining me now is Laurie Williams, a professor of political science at Mount Royal University in Calgary. Laurie, thanks so much for being here tonight. Well, it's my pleasure to join you. We've been asking about influences. I suppose I'll, I should ask you too, someone who, a woman who, who you looked up to as a mentor or as, or as an inspiration. I'm going to say my my grandmother, my baba, especially okay. now with what's going on, what's going on in Ukraine. One of the most incredibly loving, um, caring people I ever had the pleasure to know. And someone of Ukrainian descent. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing in Canada. We've been talking about this for, for days now, just the sheer, I mean, 1.4 million Canadians can have some uh, lineage back to Ukraine or the, or what is now modern day Ukraine. So um, speaking of, looking at the political race itself, we saw Leslie Lewis come in today. Um, do you think that changes, was that a surprise at all? And how do you think that changes the race so far? Well, no, it wasn't a surprise. Leslie Lewis, uh, basically came from obscurity to to rank third in the conservative race in uh, in 2020 um uh, she hasn't been i i would say a prominent voice in terms of what's going on in national politics but but certainly is a an important voice in the party though she is a social conservative in some respects has uh, more moderate views than let's say a pierre Poilievre. So could could offer for some people an alternative, um, someone who speaks both to, you know, personal values that might be to the right, but also uh, a bit more pragmatism, perhaps. I was speaking with Tasha Carradine, uh just before this, who announced that she was not running a lot yesterday after pondering that for several weeks and instead backed Jean Charest. What do you make of Jean Charest's candidacy? I know, I mean, I grew up in Quebec. I was a bit, I was honestly a bit surprised uh, that he would be seen sort of as that uniting figure on the right, but who knows? Yeah, I, I think it's for many people a long shot because as we know, uh, someone who hasn't sort of been active in front, front and center in politics tends to fall off of that recognition uh, radar that, that people often have. The huge advantage that that uh, Charest has is that in in Quebec, uh, Pierre Poilievre is very unpopular in Quebec. He's got real liabilities there, and and Charest thinks that he can um, can hold Quebec, really bring them into the fold. Uh, the Conservatives don't have a lot of seats there right now. He's hoping to sort of build that up, offer an alternative to the Liberals in Quebec and and to the Bloc, frankly, in Quebec. Um, but he's announcing on Thursday in Calgary because he wants to show that he's reaching out to the West as well. I think, you know, that's potentially um, advantageous uh, strategy. The big advantage that, that Charest has is his, his sort of deep roots, uh, really in the Conservative Party federally, in the Liberal Party provincially. People are trying to make make much of the fact that he was 
uh, a liberal isn't a true blue conservative, and Stephen Harper's like to likely to oppose him on that basis. But he's got an extraordinarily uh, strong set of connections. He can certainly build a campaign, generate memberships, uh, attract volunteers uh, and money. Um, so he, Pierre Poiliev, and uh, I would say Patrick Brown, who are also expecting to come into the race, these are the folks that are going to be the heavy hitters in terms of organization and financing. Yeah, Patrick Brown is an interesting candidate too, because um, I guess as in Brampton now, but but he's where do you think he would fall within this this spectrum? Where does this battle start to divide if if he comes into the race? Well, he's very much a centrist. Um, so so far, we we basically have two people uh, that are further to the right of the of the of the party, and we've got two people that are are centrists, uh, or we're expecting to have a, a Patrick Brown and and Jean Charest in the race, and they're both um, centrists, former progressive conservatives. Uh, I think think they are thinking, as might uh, uh, Peter McKay and, and others like him, they're thinking that the key to defeating the liberals is to be able to appeal um, to moderate conservatives or, or swing voters, people that um, may or may not want to support the liberals, may have done so in previous elections, but can be persuaded to vote for the conservatives in a future election. And the problem is that the folks that are leaning um, further to the right will not appeal to those centrist or swing voters. It looks like Poiliev is thinking that the key to winning an election is to draw people in from the right, to, to bring people back from um, from Maxime Bernier, perhaps. And, and you know, when you look at some of the writings where the vote was split, assuming some of those people who voted for Bernier would have voted, voted for conservatives um, had they appealed to their principles enough, um, that's that seems to be the direction that he wants to move the party, whereas people like Charest and, and Brown um, want a bigger tent party that can uh, embrace those that are further to the right, um, but also appeal to more moderate voters. It really does sound like a battle for the soul of the party, though, in some ways, because these are two very different visions uh, for where mm-hmm. this party goes from here. And it's and after watching what happened to Aaron O'Toole, it's hard to see where the move to the middle, uh, where the big tent candidates such as Jean Charest, it's hard to see them being able to unify, which seems, you know, at least from a from a spectator's point of view, to be a very fractured party right now. It is, it is very fractured, and united conservative parties do have these problems. So they've got the, the, the fiscal conservatives, the moderate conservatives, they've got the social conservatives, they've got the libertarian wing. Uh, and when we look at federal politics, we've also, we've also got regional divisions that make things very difficult um, for conservatives. So these are um, forces that are actually pulling the party uh, apart. Again, federally, but also, as we're seeing here in Alberta, it just is extremely difficult to govern a party that has so many um, competing and and, uh, opposing forces within it. Stephen Harper managed it um, by basically keeping a tight lid on and control over the party, um, insisting that people not speak about the kinds of policies, at least not publicly speak about the policies that would, would be a liability in terms of trying to win a future election. Uh, saying that they that he wasn't going to legislate or deal with some of those social conservative views, um, and and sort of focusing on um, sort of the the moderate conservative vision. Having said that, however, uh, 
we're hearing that that uh, or reading that that Stephen Harper would oppose Jean Charest partly because they were sort of opponents um, when Stephen Harper was was prime minister. Uh, Jean Charest made no secret of his disdain, uh, criticized him publicly regu- regularly, and and Stephen Harper wants a true conservative to be elected, um, and I. That that's the thing that sort of puzzles me because I guess Stephen Harper thinks he he was at heart a true conservative, but he governed very pragmatically, not at all ideologically, and he managed to keep control over those ideological sort of tensions um, while he was leader. Whoever becomes the leader of the Conservative Party is going to have to figure out their own way of managing managing those divisions, either by inspirational leadership and vision, or. Um, or by the sort of tight control that, that someone like Stephen Harper uh, exerted. Oh, and just going back to Aaron O'Toole, sure. I was going to say about Aaron O'Toole, um, part of the problem for Aaron O'Toole is that he campaigned for the leadership to the right wing of the party, to social conservatives in particular, and then he pivoted to the centre to try to appeal to a broader range of Canadians, and it just didn't work. Um, it, it angered people who felt betrayed. I was going to say people hold, I remember my time in Ottawa, people hold long grudges in politics. So I'm sure Stephen Harper remembers very well what Jean Charest said about him back when. Um, Mm -hmm. I I guess the other big question is who runs for the liberals? And if, if this is all about, you know, I'm not Justin Trudeau and suddenly someone like Pierre Polyev finds themselves facing somebody different, the whole Mm -hmm. tactic, because really what you're hearing now is, you know, I'm not Justin Trudeau seems to be kind of the the main rallying point for at least one section of the conservative party. Yeah. Um, it's hard to know exactly who'd be the, the successor in the liberal party, but I think a lot of eyes have been on Christian Freeland for a long time and for very good reason. Um, she has led a number of very complicated files since coming into government. She negotiated a new trade deal with uh, the United States and Mexico against a very hostile U.S. Uh, and protectionist U.S. government managed to campaign quite effectively, or to lead a campaign quite effectively, um, to to preserve much of what was in the original uh, free trade agreement, make some sort of gains for Canada, and not lose too much, which was probably the best that could be managed there. Um, she worked in intergovernmental affairs quite effectively, uh, and now both as finance minister and some of the things that she's accomplished at finance, as finance minister, but particular, particularly her um, her leadership, frankly, in this this horrific uh, set of issues in Ukraine. Um, it you know she's a she's written both as a journalist and as as a book author about the international financial system. She is not allowed to go into Russia because she's seen as such a, a threat there. And um, appears to have been influential. I don't know how influential, but appears to have been a significant influence in in uh, some of the un- the United sort of uh, sanctions uh, and restrictions placed on Russia currently. Um, her the respect that she enjoys, her her uh, focus, her intelligence, her her determination, um, and and sort of the 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 persistence. And getting things accomplished with a good sort of plan and strategy in place and not deviating from that, that's earned her a lot of respect. And, um, you know, she may not be the most charismatic of leaders. I don't know how well she'd do in a, in a national campaign just based on her, her political persona as compared with, with Justin Trudeau. But she's, uh, she's got a really good record to run on. 
Well, a big announcement from the White House today, not an unexpected one. The U.S. is initiating a full ban on Russian oil and gas and energy imports. U.S. President Joe Biden says, of course, that will affect American daily life. Gas prices there obviously going up as fast as they are here. At the same time, Alberta's Premier Jason Kenney was in Texas today making a pitch for Canadian oil to make up for that difference. Um, Laurie Williams is here, Professor of Political Science at Mount Royal University in Calgary. I'm just wondering from your perspective, it feels like the energy issue has got, gotten right back into the eye of the political storm now, that this is now going to be a very hot topic in the next year and a half or so. Yeah, I think you're right in a lot of ways. Um, first of all, uh, obviously, um, the whole idea of production and transportation of oil is going to be front and center again. Um the, the reality is that if Europe re- even decreases its imports from from uh, Russia, the price of oil is likely to, to increase uh, around the world unless unless other suppliers can ramp up production sufficiently to to balance that out. And and that doesn't look like it's it's uh, short on the horizon. Um, I think there are there are still going to be uh, significant concerns around just managing environmental concerns, reducing um, emissions, um, you know, taking those environmental uh, concerns seriously and, and generating investment for the long term with that sort of balance between energy and the environment. So, so we're seeing Jason Kenney right now saying, well, you know, if we, if we build Keystone, we can, we can um, you know, make up for some of the lost supply from, from Russia. But the reality is that it's not the pipeline that's the problem, it's the production. Um, we're hearing that, that you know, with uh, enough lead time, and it's going to take time, uh, Canada, or at least Alberta, could boost its production um, as much as 200,000 to 400,000 barrels a day. But that still leaves uh, a shortfall of somewhere between 272 and 472,000 uh, barrels short per day um, into, into the U.S., uh, if we want to get more oil to the United States and do so on a short-term basis, Keystone isn't going to be the solution to that. It'll have to be uh, either Line 3 or or uh, oil by rail. And um, I see. Go ahead. Sorry, Laurie, I, I cut you off. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that there's also a lot of questions being raised about the energy environment balance in Alberta. Uh, you know, Jason Kenney likes to talk about ethical oil compared with the the dictatorships in other countries that are being looked to, but we've got a kind of oil that raises, as we know, significant environmental concerns. And uh, although many of the oil and energy companies are, are are sort of striking that balance more effectively, it's not something that Jason Kenney spent a lot of time highlighting. And as we know, he's been in a bit of a combative relationship with environmentalists and the governor of Michigan, uh, Michigan, um, this isn't going to win uh, support for those who want to try to balance the energy and the environment, and it's not going to support long-term investment as effectively as that more balanced approach might do. Yeah, I have about a minute left here. I did notice that TC Energy said today that they would not uh, would not reopen the Keystone XL pipeline project, even if there is political pressure to do so. Um, in 30 seconds, I guess just... I guess what we're really going to need to see in the next conservative leader as well is some sort of balance that pleases both people who are in favor of, you know, increasing uh, the amount of energy that we export, but also at the same time recognizes that there is a climate crisis. Yeah, and and that's going to be one of the challenges. And I I see this for Poiliev as well. He's criticizing Jean Charest for for supporting the carbon tax. 
there's got to be something in the conservative platform to address environmental issues because many voters cited the number one reason for not voting for the liberal for the conservatives rather was that they didn't have a credible climate plan um, so I don't know what they're going to do about that, but the leader is, is going to have to address that effectively if they want to win the next election. Lori Williams, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Ben. It was a pleasure.